0: Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with Slugger, Joey Bats, Jose Bautista. <laughs>
1: Here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by a six-time All-Star, a three-time Silver Slugger winner, and he won the Hank Aaron Award both in 2010 and 2011. Ladies and gentlemen, Jose Bautista. Jose, thanks for coming on the program.
2: My pleasure, my man. It's uh, It's been uh, a while since, since we kind of reconnected at the David Ortiz event, but it was a Great seeing you again and I'm happy you asked me to be on and I'm excited to be here. Well
1: thanks. We're glad to have you. Um, all right, I've had a ton of guys on the podcast, Jose. A lot of guys with a, a lot of different stories, a lot of credentials, a lot of hall of famers. I don't think I've ever had you're the first. You're the first I've ever had on that a species was named after you. Tell me That's about right. that. A lot of people a, a, a weevil, right? An insect. Robert Anderson yes. discovered it.
2: It's kind of weird, you know, I wish I could tell you more about it, but it's not like they need your permission apparently to do these type of things. And not that I mind it at all either. So uh, it was a surprise to me when it happens and I got the news and I saw it on the internet and whatnot. So I didn't know if it was meant to be, uh, uh, I don't know, like flattering or not, <laughs> but I decided to choose that path and, and uh, consider it an honor, and it was kind of cool now that I know that something's going to stay in uh, perpetuity for the rest of time as a species of an insect, more specifically a type of beetle, is now apparently named after me.
1: I, I I would definitely take it as flattery. Anything, anytime you get anything named after you, and I think the guy was Robert Anderson. I think he's he's Canadian, and that was your time when you were in Toronto. So yeah, I would say it's definitely flattery to have anything. Na- there's no uh, there's no Josh Donaldson Beatles.
2: <laughs> no, there's not. There's only a Batista Beetle, and uh, to be quite honest, it's it's kind of cool when you think about it for a minute after you get the initial shock out of your system. And it is, it is kind of cool. It is
1: cool. All right. Uh, you're born in the Dominican Republic. And, uh, you know, recently I've had um, Adrian Beltre on, I had Albert Pujols on, and they talked about it. Tell me about um, what it was like for you growing up, not only in the Dominican, but just Jose Bautista, take me through your childhood.
2: Yeah. So I, I grew up in 1980, October 19th, uh, so we just kinda want you to place yourself there in the in the in in the time that uh that I grew up. Uh, you know, third world country. But I grew up in Santo Domingo, the biggest city. Uh second biggest city is Santiago. So we're an island of about ten million people today back back then. I don't know exactly how many, but obviously less. Um and we're just a little bit behind in times back then. Uh not as much as now. We're pretty pretty much cut up with technology and everything. So Pretty much a, a big city now. Uh, the city itself has about five million people today. Uh, a few, few less back then. But I grew up as a middle-class child uh, in a in a family of both professionals. Um, my dad's a poultry farmer, agricultural engineer by trade, uh, or by by degree at school. And my mom was a, a CFO uh, of a conglomerate of companies um, and uh, accountant by trade. So. Uh, educated household education was preached upon me, uh, to be a priority and both professionals. Um, and it was just, uh, growing up what I compare it to from the American perspective is growing up as a, as a regular American kid, just, you know, watching cable. I grew up obviously with the, the, the luxury compared to my country mates or the majority of them of, uh, private education, which instilled English in me at an early age. So I grew up watching cable and playing with my friends around the neighborhoods, all kinds of sport, you know, just running the neighborhood, playing, pick up baseball, playing basketball, soccer, football, riding bikes, roller skates, rollerblades, whatever you could think of growing up, uh, me and my friends, we all, we did it all.
1: Yeah, that is cool. And it is quite different from from the other guys I've had on the podcast that, that come from the D- Dominican Republic. A uh, lot of different stories. I know baseball, obviously, is, is the big thing in the Dominican Republic. You said you played other sports. But did you always know that baseball is what you wanted to pursue?
2: Yeah, like you said, in the Dominican, baseball is it. <laughs> Sometimes it for the it. kids and uh, in, in middle class and above, some of them play soccer, do tennis, swimming, and some other stuff. But for me, baseball was it. And when I say I played other sports, none of them were really organized. I played with my friends around the neighborhood, but organized, uh, organization-wise, baseball was it. Not only because it's what um, it's done in the Dominican, but it's where my love and passion was from day one. Uh, even when I was a little kid, forcing my dad to go out in the backyard of our condo uh, building to, to throw me balls when he got back from work.
1: While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan. Hey, thanks, Boone. Football fans, who's ready to score some free bets?
0: Now you can when you bet on any NFL game this week with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. New customers who bet just $1 on either team to score can win $100 in free bets. When a team scores, you score. Hey, if Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, no worries. DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So why wait? Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code Boone B O O N E. Bet one dollar on either team to score and win one hundred dollars in free bets. If they score, you score. With promo code Boone this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be twenty-one or older. New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum five dollar deposit and one dollar wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem?
1: Call one 800 gambler And now back to my interview with Jose Batista. You said you went to a private high school it was De La Salle High School. Um, you went there for four years. A lot of a lot of guys that come over from the Dominican Republic, and you know, we both lived the life and we've both been through the minor leagues. You know, I I went to college and uh Went in the minor leagues and there were a lot of, uh, of, of Latin teammates that I had and, and a lot of young ones. And coming over, uh, you know, it had to be quite a culture shock to them. I, I talked to them at, and, and it's fascinating to me the life they led. And a lot, of ki- a lot of these kids over there, they sign when they're 16 years old and they just come to the United States and they really don't know English. And it's got to be a tough thing for them. Uh, adapting. I mean, a lot of, most of them do and and go on to have careers, but that's not always the case. You went uh, through high school. Tell me a little bit about the recruiting process for you. I know you went, uh, you had some offers from the Yankees, from the, from the Diamondbacks and eventually the Reds. And and I'm really interested at this. The Reds offered you 300 grand. I, I think you agreed in principle there was a, there was a changing of, of, of the ownership or something. They ended up reneging. Take me through that a little bit.
2: Yeah. So I graduated high school, but in reality, what I always wanted to do was play professional baseball. And for Dominican kids, it starts in the Dominican. uh, When you sign your first contract as a non-drafted free agent, you play Dominican summer league. So I tried as hard as I could. Um, to put myself through that system and get the best offer I could. And the best offer, uh, initially came from the Diamondbacks. It was about 40 grand. And, um, you know, I, I thought education and me and my family thought, you know, and, uh, between, you know, in reality, I wanted to play ball. My family was like, your education is is more important and worth more than 40 grand. So they kind of, uh, pushed me in the, in the say no direction. So I, I did that. So, um, Right before the fall semester of 99 uh, was about to start. It's exactly what you said. I had attended uh, in the summer through an advisor I had at the time, a team one showcase in St. Petersburg at the TROP and nothing really came of it. But um, I did get a call from an agent, uh, from a scout of, uh, for, for the Reds. And he came down to Dominican, put me through a hole like three-day session of workouts, including games. And I, and I was at the height of my game and did pretty good. And, you know, verbally that's, hey, I'm going to try to get this deal done, but, you know, until the offer comes officially because it exceeds an amount from uh, from the front office, you can't really, you know, consider this done. Um, and like you said, uh, they were going through uh, an ownership change And, you know, whether it fell through the cracks, whatnot, or they weren't really interested at the front office at the time to sign me, uh, you know, time kept passing on. And I ended up getting a a college scholarship to attend Chipola Junior College in Florida through an old Little League coach's dad who was on a board of a foundation that used to pair up kids uh, to play sports in in colleges around the U.S. So I had a decision to make. I reported college, and I know that I had to put my, my professional baseball career on hold at least for, for a year, because as you know, in junior college, you can get drafted after your first year. Or I had to keep waiting and hope for the best. Uh, and, and the best thing that I did was go to college and not wait around, because the Reds never came back uh, at that point in time uh, with with a firm offer. So... Uh, ended up going to Chipola Junior College in uh, Mariana, Florida, in the middle of the Panhandle, uh, and it was uh, probably the best decision I ever made in my life.
1: And and probably coming from from the Dominican Republic, it's probably you're in the minority. The the kids that take that route, and as you said, you know I know what it's like, Jose, because when we're sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, and we're ball players. I had the parents that had the same mindset was Brett. Hey, your education's important. You know, baseball is what you're pursuing, but you know, education, education as a kid, if you're brought up that way, you think, yeah, I really want to get my education, but I know what you're saying when you say, I just want to play ball. You know, I, I got drafted out of high school, but I was a 29th round pick. So it's like, man, I got this USC scholarship or, or I signed for $15,000. It didn't make sense. My dad wouldn't have let me, um, and it was the best decision i ever made too i needed i think looking back uh, i think i needed those 3 years and uh, but it, but it's a it's a different route and i would assume you're in the minority of of people from Santo domingo that go the college route on to to a major league career am i right on that
2: you're 100% right and i would say it's, it's less than 1% uh i can tell you right now that off the top of my head uh Even guys, because a lot of them sometimes come to high school, and obviously that increases the percentage of guys that that end up going to college from the Dominican if you had high school in the states, But straight from Dominican to go to college, it doesn't happen very often. I'd say less than 1% of the kids that come out of Dominican that end up getting to the big leagues uh, have taken that route. Uh, One name I can think of right now is Ramon Laureano for the A's.
1: Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's even less than I thought it was when you say less than, you know, than 1%. And I believe that scout was Oscar Perez. And, and there's a uh, program that they have in place over there. It's the Latin athlete education fund. Uh, take me through that a little bit and how that helped you. I think, I think Oscar Perez and Don Oderman are, are the two that were essential in getting that deal done for you to come over to go to Chipola college and, and kind of start, you know, living your dream albeit at, the, at right. the JC level, but we all start somewhere. We all, most of us do go to college.
2: 100%. And um, you're right. Don Oderman. Uh, you know, may he rest in peace now. He's um, a former um, just entrepreneur, investor, and um, uh, you know, just very kind person that worked in the Peace Corps for a number of years in different countries in Latin America. He, uh, he took in the initiative of creating this, Latin Athletes Education Fund with um, Oscar Perez Senior, which is not to be confused with Oscar Perez Junior, who is, uh, you know, executive at MLB offices, uh, Dominican, and used to work for the Mets. Um, so, so, yeah, they had this, this um, program in place, just trying to pair up kids with good educational backgrounds and good, uh, solid English uh, that were student-athletes. To pursue their dreams, um, like you said, uh, and go to college in the states, he has you uh, you know been over five years now then he passed away. Uh, and unfortunately, obviously he can't continue with those efforts anymore. but uh, for about ten years, I, I try to follow in his footsteps, and um, I created a foundation myself mimicking what he started and uh, I've kind of put it my foundation to a halt uh, at the moment right now uh, for the time being, uh, running into some, uh, administration changes. Uh, so, but he ended up helping over 200 kids in the period of time that he did it. And over the 10 years that I did it, uh, I helped about 64 kids go to college, uh, which I'm proud to say that, um, about 58 of them ended up, uh, getting their, their college degrees.
1: that's very cool man when you when you can go through a program like that 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 benefited you and and you ended up having a great big league career uh to be able to kind of pass that on and and you know i know what it's like as we get a little bit older and we're and we're getting you're still man you were just playing this uh this past summer in the olympics but for me i've been out of the game now 13 years but it's cool when you can give back and and help another uh especially another uh, another athlete that was once in we were in their position at one time it's pretty rewarding and, and it's cool that 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 you did that all right let's fast Absolutely. forward a little bit you go
2: here's what this program worked because not only were they finding ways to pairing you up and getting as much uh, financial aid or athletic scholarship that they could, uh, you know, within what the NCAA allowed, they were plugging in the holes if there was any financial gaps. Uh, but also they supported you. They were like really the backbone because like you said, there's a cultural shock and there's, you have to learn now to go, uh, post-high school studies in a different language, not your native one. And granted, most of the guys that that came over had to prove and show that they were bilingual, but studying in English is one thing. Being able to speak it is another one. So they served as a support uh, group and really became a, a big family where everybody kind of helped each other out. Even the guys that had been through the programs in year past can always pick up the phone, see, uh, seek advice, get help, and they kind of would – you know, help you navigate what's uncharted waters for all of us when we just show up. And uh, I think that's why a lot of us ended up having success because we had that huge support system.
1: Go through two years of junior college, you end up signing in the uh, 2000 draft uh, 20th round You get half a million dollars from the pirates and you're off to Williamsport. And, and it's, You know, I want to go back a little bit. You mentioned uh, growing up, it was, uh, you know, education was instilled in you at a young age. You you said you learned English at a young age. How much do you think when your minor league journey started, how much did your upbringing, you think, help you and give you a leg up when you went into the minor leagues?
2: Oh, it was huge. And needless to say, you know, I think we all have similar stories, but you run into guys that are way more talented than you at every level. And for whatever reason, they don't adapt, they don't perform, you know, they, they're they good at certain skills, but not playing the game or, you know, it just doesn't happen once, you know, play ball is set or between the lines, whatever. But I think having that ability to communicate and understand instruction and know exactly what the coaches are looking for, what they want, what the scout and director or the farm director is looking for what is needed to go to the next level. It's not always just stats. It's not always just perform. You know, the development has to be going on a trajectory that you're going to show promise and elevate that feeling as much as you can through the minors, as you get to the big leagues. And for me to be able to communicate with all of that staff, uh, 24 seven, every single day was huge because most guys unfortunately from the Dominican don't have or didn't have that ability at the same time. Now I try to help out as much as I can and translate and, you know, serve as a liaison of of sorts when I was there. Um, and believe me, I I have plenty of stories to kind of, um, to, to tell where it shows that sometimes having a few bilingual guys in an organization is, is definitely worth the investment. Um, because you end up saving careers, you end up, you know, steering guys away from trouble. You end up, you know, communicating what sometimes The communication gap between the Latin guys and the American coaches, you know, can't cross. And obviously, things have improved greatly in the last 20 years since I started my minor league career and the infrastructure that most MLB teams have today. Uh, But it it helped tremendously uh, when I was there 20 years ago in the minors, uh, just helping translate for guys and helping them out, you know, in different minor league cities, you know, signing leases and. Uh, renting uh, furniture and, you know, picking them up uh, and taking them grocery shopping, you know, and the feeling was mutual and they reciprocated in every way that they could, uh, how they could. So it was um, a two-way street and uh, they helped me out as much as I helped them.
1: Support for the Boone podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. And guys, when it came to the equipment I used on the field, it was so important. From the bat I used to the glove I used to the spikes I wore. And when it comes to personal grooming, just as picky, Manscaped just launched their fourth generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. Join over 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped. Imagine shaving with a sleek, well-designed, and optimized trimmer that makes shaving time your favorite time in the bathroom. I'm one of the first people to try the new 4.0, and I'm blown away by the performance, the craftsmanship, and the details on the 4.0 are next level. Also, the underwear. The underwear is unbelievable. They're as comfortable as any underwear I've ever worn. Get 20% off and free shipping with the promo code BOON. That's promo code BOON at manscaped.com com and now back to my interview with Jose Bautista. you went to Williamsport uh then you played in the South Atlantic League and then you played in, uh, you played in Lynchburg and that's the, that's that old Carolina League I played in Lynchburg they were the they were the uh I'm trying to think when I was coming up they were they were the Red Sox back then they've changed affiliation so many times but you uh in 2003 after the 2003 season uh Orioles took you in the rule five draft. And that's a real interesting thing. Right. And, and I'm sure since since then, throughout your travels in in big league baseball, you've seen you've come across a rule five uh, draft. And it's really interesting to me because it's like, wait a minute. OK, so they draft this kid. Usually, you know, he's an A ball and he's got to make this team out of spring training and he's got to stay on the roster all year. And, and it's really an uphill. It's almost like. You feel for the kid going through it. You got a lot of big leaguers up there thinking, oh, this guy's not ready. You know, he's got to be on the team. He's going to take up a roster spot. This guy just wants to play baseball. How did you feel in the, in that spring training in Baltimore uh, when you were the Rule 5? Did you feel any outside pressures or was it, hey, now I play for Baltimore. Let's go.
2: Yeah, it's uh... – a. You know, because there's always two ways of looking at things, right? So wh- one side of me was, you know, I got nothing to lose. Let me just put my head down, work my ass up, uh, try to compete and learn as much as I can and hope for the best. The other part of me was, you know, selfishly, like, you know, I just came back from and a season where I was injured, uh, broke my hand, only had 150 at-bats. Now I'm going to be on the bench probably as a utility guy in the big leagues. For the whole season, maybe squeeze out another 100 at bats. So my development's kind of getting stalled here, uh, and I need to be getting every day at bats. Almost a little small part of me um, wanted to, you know, just go through my regular development in the minors and and continue with my chase to the big leagues. But again, the other part of me was like, well, you're going to actually be in the big leagues <laughs> even if you're not playing. So um, I took the advice from the little guy on my right shoulder. And uh, and I put all my efforts in, into uh, just, you know, putting my head down, working as hard as I could, uh, learning from everybody and um, just absorbing everything that I could. Because eventually I knew that I was going to have to go back down, uh, most likely, and uh, work my way back up. So now that I'm here, I might as well learn everything that I need to do. So when I come back up here, I never, I never go back. And uh, that's the approach I took.
1: Do you have any idea what that 2004? I, I was studying up before before we jumped on this podcast, and I thought, "Wow, oh4 I don't know that I've ever seen that before." But you make your debut in 04, You get claimed off of waivers by the the Rays. Twenty five days later. Uh, You get purchased by the Royals. Royals trade you to the Mets. You don't even have time to stop off and and try on your Mets, Uni. And you're back to the Pirates in the same season. (laughs) And your head's got to be spinning.
2: How was that year for you? And it all could have been avoided if the Pirates would have put me in the 40-man the previous fall, right? So uh, it was crazy. But, again, my perspective was horse blinders on. Nose to the ground, learn, learn, learn. So I was looking at it from the positive end of the spectrum at every step of the way. I was learning from all kinds of different coaches, different styles, you know, different clubhouses, different veterans, different leaders. Um, And uh, I was part of four teams uh, that I actually suited up for. And like you said, I was part of five rosters, which is a record, by the way, if you want to put it in your book. I I was going to say, it's
1: got to be a record.
2: As was the only one, uh, at least at the time, I don't know if somebody's broken it since, to be a part of five different rosters in, in one season. But I learned from guys like Lee Mazilli, Lou Pinella, Tony Pena, uh, Lloyd McClendon, and all kinds of veteran guys in different clubhouses. And, um, you know, I, I learned a lot. And it probably served me down the road uh, to be the player I ended up becoming, you know.
1: 2005, you only get to play in 11 big league games. And uh, in 06, you get your chance. And you start off and you hit 253, 15 and 63. 07, similar year. 15 and 63 and 07. Uh, and you're off to Toronto. Um, and that would be what? Your sixth? The sixth straight. Although the Pirates were twice. So this is your fifth. But you're going to Canada. Um and you're going to end up being there a long time. You, you play in Toronto from 08 to, to 17 and had some, had some big time years uh, in Toronto. What was your first thought when you were going going across the border and going to play for the Blue Jays? Just an opportunity or, or was there any differences for you? You're, already, you're coming from the Dominican to, to America. Now you're going from America to Canada. Not that, that it's, it's a big culture shock from America to, to, to Canada. There's little, little differences. But what was your thoughts going to Toronto? <laughs>
2: Yeah, at this point, you know, I've been in the states for close to 10 years between college the minors and Pittsburgh and right. uh getting the call to go to Canada was just, you know, a little bit of a fresh breath uh, breath of fresh air uh because the situation in in Pittsburgh had kind of, you know, not been the ideal one for somebody that's trying to stick in a, on a roster for me at least. You know how it is when you're uh, part of one management's crop and then they change GMs and they change the manager and they have a, uh, all kinds of new ideas and ways that they want to do things. And, you know, sometimes the roster just stand out. And and uh, like you said, with my stats, I was holding my own, but it's not like I was tearing it up. I wasn't, you know, putting up all-star numbers. But, um, um so, you know, I looked at it as a fresh opportunity. I kind of looked at the roster real quick and, saw that they were stacked at the moment obviously american league East much different than nl nl uh central at during those years uh with the exception of the astros who were big spenders and had all kinds of superstars um so you know i I was like man i might not be playing every day but again got to make the best of this um you know and uh ended up working out uh when i came in there they they put me in the office like it's customary when you get traded and you know, the GM and, and the manager said, you know, we, we don't know what's going to happen here in the next couple of years, but we see you as a movable piece. So be ready to go every single day in case they, some, some of the veterans need that day out here and there um, and, and try to do your best and we'll see what happens. So stuck around the rest of 08 they um, tender me an offer uh, instead of uh you know, let letting me, letting me go out as an untender, show up next spring training, same kind of deal. Uh, but at the deadline of 09, they ended up trading most of the team away. And uh, that's what the opportunity came about. And I had a strong September and kind of earned a position in the everyday lineup for, for 2010. And then, you know, I just 2010 and 11 were my, my big time years.
1: They're unbelievable years, and I mean, in in two thousand and ten, I want to I want to talk to you about between oh nine and ten. Was it? Anything other than you knew you were going to be in the lineup every day, there had to be something different. Tell me about the leg kick. I've I've had, I've talked to Josh Donaldson, who was a who was a teammate of yours at length. Uh, I worked with in the minor leagues with the A's when he was with the A's, and we talked about that leg kick and how lethal it can be. But but when your timing gets off, you got to find a way to survive until the, you get that timing back. But you go from, I mean. Think, <laughs> you're a silver slugger. You're an all-star. You win the Hank Aaron Award, which which doesn't get as much press as an MVP. But the Hank Aaron Award, for, the, for those of you listening out there, that's a big-time award. That's basically them telling you you're the best offensive player in the league. It's a pretty big, pretty darn big honor. You hit 260, you hit 54 homers, you drive in 124. I think the most you'd ever hit is 16 uh it had to be an unbelievable year your first all-star game uh i remember my first all-star game what a thrill that was it's you know we first as kids we we uh we dream about being a big leaguer then we're a big leaguer we're dreaming about being an all-star and that comes and and it's so special but that's talk about coming on the scene that that's pretty big time just just roll me into that from 09 to 10 and and through that 10 year
2: yeah it's uh it it was a lot of things. It was the confidence. It was the playing time. It was the right time in my career. I was, you know, willing and, uh, strong enough and, and ready to go. And I had made some adjustments, had been working on them, even though I was on the bench for, I don't know, almost a year, year and a half with Cito, Dwayne Murphy, Gene Tennis, three hitting coaches on the same team. You know, I had the luxury of that. Uh, so, you know, and, and then just the pitches kept coming and I kept swinging and not thinking about it. and, you know, going through it and looking back, it's like those magical seasons that you end up having good years. And I don't know if it, if it's uh, the same feeling or the same outlook as you get when you look back. You're like, man, I can't believe that uh, that me and my team did all that. You know, it's a, uh, it's unbelievable. Sometimes it seems surreal, but um, you know, you just when you're going through it, you don't want to think about it too much because you don't want to mess it up. So you just keep plugging away, showing up every day, and keep going after it. And, uh, then you look back and you you amaze yourself sometimes. So uh, it was fun, uh, obviously, uh, on the individual level. We weren't winning as much as anybody would have would have liked to, but um, you know, as an individual, I was having success and enjoying as much as I could uh, with with it. So just going out there every single day, grinding it out, and uh, you know, sometimes stuff clicks, and you're like, okay, now I just got to focus on repeating it. And uh, it's one of those things that happened with me where timing was huge. You know, my, my, my misses were usually to the right side over the dugout, and I was under the ball. And, you know, Thito, Dwayne, Murphy, and Gene Tannins were like, you know, if you could just be on time more often, more consistently, you would, you would have more consistent results, and you would be able to aggressively attack the ball instead of defensively fighting enough because it's already on top of you. And I could never make sense of that. And they just kept hammering away at that and telling me you got to get started earlier. It's not about necessarily putting your down early. It's starting your load early during earlier, during the pitchers delivery earlier, during the pitchers delivery and doing it slow and controlled so you can pull the trigger when you want. And, um, and you're swinging the bat the bats not swinging you that kind of thing and they just kept hammering at me with that and i was working out in the cage and batting practice for you know that period of time when i got traded in 08 till i became a, a regular in 2010 so i had a lot of work and obviously during those times and, and we haven't touched upon this but my first 10 years of professional baseball i played winter ball i played for lise tigers in my hometown dominican republic and um that also helped me you know go and work on stuff which you always try to win championships there, too, and win games, but it's not, um, it's not like you can practice things in the big leagues like you can in the winter Bowl. So, um, you know, I just kept plugging away, plugging away, plugging away till, till I got the opportunity and things um, just started clicking, feeling good, and made sense, and I was just focused on going out there and executing. You know, it's a completely different mindset when you show up every day going to execute instead of what do I have to do today to justify my presence in the, in the, cl- in the lineup tomorrow? You know, it's a completely different feeling and it's just, it lifts you up and gives you more confidence and you just, you reach that level that you thought was possible, but you kind of, I, I, at that point I never got to it. The closest thing I got to it was my Juco days because obviously competition wasn't as good. And then my 2005 year in A after I, was Rule 5, then 0-4, and I had to go back to the minors in 0-5. So, you know, in 05. So, um, you know I, I always felt like I could contribute at, at the big league level, but to do it in that way, uh, you know, I even surprised myself, and uh, I've said it before, and, I, and I'll probably say it for the rest of my life, but I wouldn't change a thing. I enjoyed every single second of it, and it was unbelievable just being one of those guys that the team can rely upon on a day-to-day basis to try to, you know, beat whoever we were playing.
1: And you and you and you touched on winter ball versus the big leagues, and, and it, it it's so right. I, I through my career, I, I had a couple years where I had to make big changes in my in my setup in my swing. And, you know, the, the layman question is, well, why don't you just do it in July when you were struggling? I said, you don't understand. You don't just go from a closed stance to an open stance in the middle of a big league season. These guys are too good. That's something you got to do in the offseason. And it's repetition and it's repetition and it's repetition. I often kind of I don't know if it's quite comparable, but it's almost like a golf, like a PGA Tour guy with his golf swing. If he's going to have a swing change, he doesn't just work at it on the range and bring it into the tour next week this is something that's that's months and months of work and you and you mentioned winter ball you could work on a little bit because it wasn't as important it wasn't going on your bubblegum card in the big leagues so you could work on some things you wanted to work on is that is that how you approach winter ball
2: 100 percent, and it's part of your development and you're trying to win just like you do in the minors every single day but there's those at bats where it's you know a uh, Tuesday night game and you're in first place and you're playing the worst team and you're up by six runs, you know, you can work on some things and there's those counts that you can work on some things. And in the big leagues, you can't afford to do that. You know, it's uh, it's, it's the, the top level in the world. So you you never take that approach in, into a single at bat. Um, so yeah, Winter Ball helped me tremendously throughout uh, the early well, I can't even say the early days, half of my career this is, is the right term, uh, just to continue to get better year after year.
1: 2011, another unbelievable year. Silver Slugger, uh, Hank Aaron award again, another another all-star. You hit 43. Uh, you hit 300. Uh, you're the home run champ for the second year in a row. Um and this is what I think is really cool because I never came close to this. I started an all-star game, but you're the leading vote getter. And it's not going to be the first time you do it again in in 2014, but that's pretty cool. Because we know as players, you know, every year we sit there, and, and I'm sure you had years like this, where everybody goes over the all-star roster and you oh, this guy got screwed. He got snubbed. He got snubbed. Oh, he shouldn't have made it, but he made it. And a lot of times the fans, you know, the fans are the fans and they have the right and and they come watch us and they pay for a ticket to to watch us play. They're a big part of what we do in our livelihood. But the fact that they voted yet, that that had to be a pretty cool thing. Like we were talking about you getting named after a species. I didn't know how to take it at first, Booty, but but as we went on, I take it as a compliment. As much as it's not really important, going to the All-Star game is always an honor. And it's not the most important thing, but, but being the leading vote getter, that had to be pretty cool. Like, wow, they appreciate what I'm doing.
2: You're a hundred percent right. And at the end of the day, we play this, this game because the fans do support us, but just to know that they think of you highly enough um, to vote you as a lead vote getter into an all-star game was the, um, you know, the the biggest compliment I could ever have uh, in it just shows you that, you know, and I think you might have been playing uh, when when these commercials came out, you know, the chicks dig the long ball. I mean, all kinds of fans yeah. dig the long ball. So because I was yeah. hitting those home runs, obviously the fans were loving it. And they were showing their support and their love in the in the in the voting for the All Star game. And I could um uh, I could thank them all I want, but it doesn't really reflect how it, it makes you feel at the end of the day when we know that the games the games play for the fans. And they're voting le- they're me, the top vote getter, you know, for me and meant the world.
1: Yeah, pretty awesome. Uh, you had a run there six years in a row. You made the all-star team every year. Uh, you hit 27, 38, 35 in 2015, you hit 40 again. Um, and I was just thinking about it, you know, I had a little bit of a run in the early 2000s in Seattle where that city was on fire and it was a fun place to play in Seattle and, uh, and to be a Mariner at that time. And you walk around the city and you and, and it's a big deal when the players are walking down the street. Uh, how did Canada embrace you? It had to be pretty awesome. I mean, you went to six all-star games in a row. You're doing commercials. You're kind of the talk of the town. How did that affect you? And, and I think be, because of everything you'd been through and, and your upbringing, you probably handled it a little bit better than the average guy that gets this enormous amount of fame uh, really quickly in, in, in a new country. But uh, tell, tell me what it was like for Jose, Jose Bautista, just walking around that city of Toronto during those years.
2: Uh, man, it was great. <laughs> people people <laughs> Pretty cool. just like just like like with the votes, people uh, were digging it and they were, uh, you know, showing their their appreciation for you uh, every time they saw me and my teammates down the street because it ended up turning into a a pretty competitive uh, ball club. Eventually in Toronto, we were, we're uh, the tag of town because at the time hockey wasn't working out. Basketball wasn't working out. MLS wasn't working out. We were, you know, the team that was competing, uh, the best at the time. So we all were enjoying it, but on the personal side, yeah. Every time I walked outside and and even to this day, I I go to Canada or Canadian people see me anywhere. They show me the love. And uh, I love them back just as much because I appreciate the fact that, you know, they let us into their household every day at seven o'clock or they come to watch me play uh, at the stadium. So it's a big commitment for baseball fans. And just to see that kind of love and, and support is, is outstanding. And it's uh, it's one of the things that you end up appreciating even more after you stop playing the game.
1: 16 and 17 you had 22 23 in 2018 you end up playing for, for three different teams Atlanta, New, New York and the Phillies and that ends up being the last uh, year that, that you've played in the big leagues um, I want to talk about the WBC and you've been a part of that um, you played in the World Baseball Classic in 09 and, and in 2017 and I'm wondering how it how much does it mean for you to be able to sit sit there and play in a series uh, representing the Dominican Republic?
2: It's um, you know a different feeling of proudness and patriotism that that kind of just comes out of deep inside of you. Um, I'm sure you ask any any American guy that has a chance to put on the team USA jersey and they'll tell you the same. And it's probably obviously the same for, for a guy in each particular country, but just all those thoughts and emotions that get evoked of your hometown. And when you grew up and then now how you're representing your flag in international competition, it's, it's um, obviously the big leagues is, is the top level, but on the international stage on the, you know, non-professional side, this is as high as you can go. And, um, is, a Something that I I would partake any single chance that I get. Obviously, my playing days are over now, but um, whenever they called, I was answering and I made myself available when I could. I made uh, I missed the the edition that was there. I think at thirteen or fourteen, in between the O nine and seventeen, because I just had surgery on my wrist and uh, I couldn't play. But uh, those two tournaments were uh, also some of the what I consider the top 10 highlights of of my complete baseball career in general so uh, even though we didn't make it very far in either tournament uh still super proud and um I could not have been more excited to represent my team in both of those tournaments
1: yeah it was cool I got to play uh I think it was 89. Yeah, I think it was a it was my sophomore year in college and and this is back when they didn't take any professionals. It was all all college from the United States and I got to play on the national team. I, it wasn't an Olympic year so it was like Pan Am games or something. I got to go to Cuba. I uh, got to see, you know, Fidel. He, show, he showed up, got to see, you know, got to walk around the streets of Cuba and see, wow, how, how lucky we are to, to live where we live and, and what the people, especially at that time how they had to live their daily lives, but it was a, it was an interesting uh, experience for me. And, but it was, it was cool. It, you know, because you'd catch yourself in the mirror and you have that USA Jersey and it's, and it's pretty special to, to represent your home country. You got to do it this year in, or last year in 2020, you played in the Olympics. You guys won a bronze. This has been two years since you played in a big league, uh, a big league game. How was that for you coming back? Did you feel like you were the old Wiley veteran trying to help, these kids out and teaching them how to play the game right? Or did you just go into it and enjoy yourself?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, Like I said, if they were calling and I was answering and that was the case, uh, it was actually this summer because even though it was the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, uh, they got postponed in 2020 until 2021 because of COVID. And they almost didn't get away with it uh, because, again, COVID was having a surge, especially in in Japan and Asia uh, in the summer of this year. But uh, they did, and everybody was safe, and I'm I'm glad I was able to be a part of it. Going to an Olympic Games is obviously the highlight of many athletes' careers, and just to have the privilege to participate, of course, I was going to, you know, uh, take advantage of that, and uh, honored again that they called me, and uh, I just, you know, went through the process of getting myself ready. Luckily, I had been you know, riding mountain bikes and riding road bikes and playing soccer. So I was fit and I was going to the gym because, you know, what else am I, are you going to do when you're retired from baseball? Uh, so I was in shape, but not baseball shape. So I had to quickly get myself into baseball shape, get the arm in shape. I had enough lead time. I had about three four months. Uh, so, uh, I took, uh, as many live at bats as I could from all kinds of pitchers uh, around town that I could find high school, college. Retired former pros, uh, independently guys—you name it—I I faced them in backfields just to get ready. And then we had to actually qualify to get there. So there was a few tournaments ahead of the Olympics that we had to participate on to uh, actually get a spot, because there was only six teams that went uh, to represent baseball in the Olympics. And uh, once we clinched, uh, I was super—you know—happy and excited for all of us. And just going there seeing how an Olympic Games is is put on from the logistics perspective was eye opening and mind boggling at the same time. But uh uh from the sport perspective it was it was amazing to see all kinds of people from different sports all over the world uh and everybody coming together, uh united by sport to celebrate the Olympic Games uh was, was also unbelievable. So a huge learning experience a uh, huge humbling experience uh, to be in in the same breath as some of those athletes that that were participating in, in the Olympics. So uh, it was an overall unbelievably successful and enjoyable experience. And anybody that has a chance from the baseball side of things to participate, uh, I would highly recommend them doing so. And even though they're not going to be baseball is not going to be in the next edition in France uh, for the Olympics, it will be back for L.A and the one after that. So uh, I'm hoping that the team Dominican gets to go back there and uh, win another medal. We ended up getting bronze this time around. So U S got silver, Japan got gold and you know, the the game is played differently in short tournaments like that with everything's at stake uh, and you can't afford to lose uh, individual games or be in in a really tough spot, but we were able to survive and and get bronze and hats off to the U S and in Japan for, for being the, the competitors that they are and get in the top two medals.
1: Before we jump out of your, your, your playing career, uh, you spent a long time. We'd already mentioned that in Toronto and you're in that American league East play a lot of games against Yankees, Boston and the Rays. you know, pretty high profile places, you know, for me. And, and it was old Yankee stadium. I never got to play a new Yankee stadium, but old Yankee stadium and, and going back to Fenway, even though it, Jose that, that didn't really set up for me that great <laughs> that that big wall it was too intriguing uh, but I loved hitting at Yankee Stadium I just loved something about it when I'd show up in the city when that plane would land it's like I, I felt like I was gonna have a good series I'm going to where so much history has been made in the game I loved hitting in in Tampa I love you know it's it's probably the worst stadium in Major League Baseball but I loved hitting there it was a good place to hit Um how was that? Did Did you enjoy playing in that East? It's It's tough. It's high stakes. It's high profile that that league, you know, with Boston and and uh, and the Yankees being in that division. But but how'd you fare? How'd you like hitting in Boston and, and uh, Yankee Stadium, new Yankee Stadium? Well, you hit in both, didn't you? Huh?
2: I hit them both. Old you hit stadium them both? All right. Can,
1: tell me the differences. Because I went back. I went to visit my brother and just watch a game. And I was I was coming down to the clubhouse. And, and a lot of the guys that, that, that are still there, the guys that work there, you know, uh, the security guys that that were worked at the old stadium. And I walked in and they were like, booty, And I felt, oh, wow. They, they kind of remember me. It's been 13 years. But I said, all right, one question for you. And this is before I even watched one game. I said, New Yankee or old? And they all looked at me and they said, it ain't even close. Old Yankee Stadium's where it's at. I want to hear yeah. your perspective. You actually played in both.
2: I second that motion, man. And I, call me a nostalgic, call me whatever you want, or a romantic, you know. I, I just, I have a thing as a baseball player that, you know, I play with my emotions on my sleeve every day, or I used to, uh, but You know, I always find different ways to to continue to drive myself and push myself and just knowing, you know, that the history is there, that all these superstars play there, stepping into the box in the same place that, you know, Ruth and others played, you know, to me that was, that was huge. And when that was lost, it was a disappointment, uh, you know, because... Uh, As a player, I love playing at Old Yankee Stadium, Uh, but New Yankee Stadium is real nice, you know, so you kind of see the benefit uh, from the change and uh, the sacrifices, the memories, and all the history that was there. But hitting-wise, as a player, I feel like the Old Yankee Stadium looked a little smaller in the left-center gap, Uh, but the ball flies, in my opinion, it it flies similar. Obviously, they're both short on right. So, as a right-handed, you know, batter, if you can go the other way like you did, uh, you were probably happy. I, that wasn't my preferred route to go out of the over the fence. <laughs> I, I like <laughs> pulling the ball, and that's why Fenway was more of a, a good match for me. That even though the wall was high, uh, it just seemed so close. It looked like a big old target. And even if I just thought about mentally hitting. The ball as hard as I could through that wall. Sometimes it just elevated enough, and if not, you got a single or a double out of it. But uh, old Yankee Stadium for me is a favorite. New Yankee Stadium, uh, I feel like played a little deeper into the left center center field areas, but down the line it flew uh, flew about the same. I thought, and if you get it, you get it. Just like um, it happens at any stadium, with the exception of, uh, for me at least, uh, San Francisco. Uh, unless it was daytime. I, I feel like to hit a homer there, you got to absolutely clobber at nighttime. Uh, but other than that, uh, you know, I did pretty good in Boston. and I did pretty good in Minnesota. Those were the other two places where I, I did really, really good. So, um, you know, I enjoyed the whole division uh, in the AL East. It was highly competitive. But once you're in it, you kind of don't think about it too much. You just, you know, that, that whole like, oh, the AL East aspect of uh, – Looking at it, you cannot only think about it that much because you're just laser focused every single day, showing up to compete, and um, that's kind of how it went for me.
1: You mentioned San Fred, I'll tell you what; I don't think you you were around yet when when Candlestick was there. That was unbelievable. I mean, talk about a bad feeling. And and I remember the guys telling me they said, "Hey, when you hit one here, you don't know. I don't care how hard you hit it." It might not go out. And they said, sometimes you might pop it up and it might fly five rows, just the way the wind patterns were at the stick. And it was, yeah. Jose, it was so uncomfortable being in that box because that wind just in your face during BP, during the game, miserable place. But a lot of times you'd, you'd miss hit one and, and kind of get pissed and you're on a way to first, it. It just keeps going and it keeps going. It keeps going. The, the, the detriment of it was there, there was two sides of that coin, and I saw some guys hit balls, and I mean lean on them. Like that that ball is 480 feet and it would go to the warning track and it was almost like disbelief. That's how bad the wind was there. But you mentioned that new San Fran. I got to play there a little bit. Once again, you know, you you talk about my style of hitting that wall in San Francisco, right field didn't serve me very well. It made me want to pull the ball. So uh, I didn't get many chances there, but yeah, interesting how we think as, as hitters too. certain parts, certain parks, um, are good for us and, and not good for other guys. And, and that's just part of being a big leaguer and, and making the adjustments, not only to, the, to each team, right. each pitcher, but each each park that you play in. You know, certain parks aren't going to agree with you. Certain are. Certain places you're not going to see the ball well. Certain places they're going to look like a beach ball. It's just the way it is.
2: <laughs> yeah, I agree with you 100%. You know, sometimes you just look down at the box and and you try to, you know, dig your cleats in and, either the box or the home plate looks like it's facing the wrong direction or yes, it's crooked. Direction and they, you look at the mound and you're like, why is this guy so much on the left side? We well, yeah. just playing in the stadium and the guy was way over here. Now he's way over, and it just messes with your, your mind and the ball comes into the zone from different angles. And it's, you know, talk about adjustments from day to day. That's, that's kind of the game within the game. And you said Tampa, you hit great there. I, I felt like I couldn't see the ball there. I had like a depth perception prog- uh, problem in that stadium. I don't know if it was the white roof or the lights or what it was. And it felt like the mound there was twice the size of other places. And, you know, you ask guys around the league and they all have their different things at every different stadium. And, you know, maybe it's an idea for somebody to compile all those little things at some point, but it's uh, it's uh, it's cool how everybody has their things at different places.
1: Yeah, I went to. I used to go to Baltimore, Jose, and this is back when Baltimore stunk. I mean, they were never winning. Uh, it was Camden Yards. It was a great place to hit. The rest of my teammates couldn't wait to get there, and I was like, oh, I just don't hit good there. I don't, and I and it's almost like I psych myself out after a number of years that I wasn't going to have a good series. And if I did, it was like lucky. I'd leave there. and be like, I can't believe I got, you know, four hits in three games. Usually I get two and uh, it, it's amazing though. It's the game and, it, and it's so weird. There's no rhyme or reason to it, but we're all different. And, and that's what makes it great. All right. I got this question. Joey bats. Where'd it come from? Who named you Joey bats?
2: All right. So the story with Joey bats uh, so in Pittsburgh, you know, uh, I think he was 06 or 07, you know, one of my first years there, I'm still trying to grind my way through, you know, uh, being in the counted on as one of the, the guys on the team. And, you know, there's vendors like, you know, at Ever stadium, and there's this dedicated guy to the people behind the plate. And he's, uh, he's like, you know, whatever, selling his sodas or popcorn or whatever. They, he was selling, I can't remember, but he, um, he starts, you know, as part of his spiel, you know, trying to like get people to buy his stuff. He, when I was on deck, he started calling me Joey Betts, Joey Betts, and somehow it made its way to the cabin upstairs for the TV um, broadcast. And uh, I can't remember if it was Steve Blass or or who it was, said it on on the air. So it just kind of started there, and everybody just picked it up, and it traveled with me to Toronto. And obviously, when when I started uh, playing better. Uh, you know, the name kind of got augmented with it, but it started in Pittsburgh with one of the vendors behind the plate. Um, and it's a shame. I can't remember his name because he definitely deserves credit for coming up with it.
1: Favorite, favorite hitters for you to watch when you were playing, who were the, who are the guys that it was worth your time to go out and watch guys on the other team hit BP?
2: Well, men Ramirez. Uh, early on, Barry Bonds. Obviously, if if you were in the big leagues when Barry Bonds was an active player, and you did not sit there and watch him take BP, shame on you. Uh, I I watched Vladimir Guerrero, Albert Pujols. Um, you know, let me see who else that I really enjoyed uh, was Jeff Bagwell, Jim Edmonds. Um, it's just. I have different things that I look at from different guys and different swings and things that I, that I admire and, and I look at. So for each one of those guys, I could go into it, but, um, you know, with, I played with Miguel Tejada and Rafael Palmero you know, amazing hitting with those guys, Mike Sweeney and in, in Kansas city, having a chance early on in my career to be in the same clubhouse with those guys was, uh, both, uh, jaw dropping and, and, um, amazing at the same time in the sense that i could pick their brain and talk to them about their approach and how they went went about things carlos beltram um jim tommy roberto alomar um you know some of those guys were definitely peeling off of the league as i was coming in but i I could catch them uh, towards the tail end of their career and if not you know i had enough time watching them on the tv as a fan that I kinda memorized their swings. Miguel Cabrera by far was one of my top guys watching. Um but the sweetest sweetest swing that I liked and admired and for some reason lefties have um I don't know, in my opinion, a prettier swing than righties was Carlos Gonzalez from Colorado. You know, this guy had a a pretty sweet swing and I would I would just love it when he would crush a ball and, and have his one-handed, uh, seamless uh, finish, and slamming the bat into the ground behind him. Uh, Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, you know those those were my guys.
1: Yeah, and and the one the one name because those are some big name guys and and that we all watch. And me, especially as a right-handed hitter, I'd always right, watch those the the Manny's and the Edgars of the world that just. All right. Why are they so successful so much? But you mentioned a guy and he he doesn't get enough credit. And I try to tell people because he's not as big a name as those guys. And that was you mentioned Mike Sweeney. What a hitter he was for about four or five years. I'd tell everybody, I'd say this Sweeney guy in Kansas City. He's like as good as anybody in the league, it, it, for sure, from the right side. The, his approach is so solid, and his swing path is so good. And to hear you mention him, that's interesting. Because you don't hear – you know—you always hear the Manny's, and you hear the Edgar Martinez's from the right side. But you don't hear that right. often of Mike Sweeney. And you're right. You brought it up. He was that good for, for that period of time.
2: Towards the end, the guy that I looked at the most uh, – was uh, Freddie Freeman. And it, it, it was just amazing for me to look at him, go through his routine, because I played with him briefly in the Braves, like you mentioned in my last season, and it's, he doesn't really care what it looks like. He just wants to go from A to B with a good pass and square it up. So for BP, he's just out there, like, flicking balls over third base, not really, like, getting into them. He's just working working every pitch. He doesn't take a pitch off. And most people are having a, an explosive swing or a pretty swing or looking for the ball to carry or to travel far or to stay to stay through it inside the ball or go the other way. He's just there like precision like Conor McGregor says, just like hitting it right in the dead center and just playing with it. Putting it wherever he wants, like placing it all over the field. And it doesn't look, you know, the most graceful swing, but you can't argue with the fact that he goes from top of the load to contact with good pass, probably more effectively than anybody playing the game uh, right now in the big leagues.
1: Biggest influence in your baseball career?
2: (sighs) I mean, I had plenty of them at different stages. My My junior college coach, Jeff Johnson, my longtime minor league coach, uh, Tony Beasley, uh, Cito Gaston in the big leagues, um, you know, those would be the top three ones that, that I can, uh, remember, but you know, uh, I took something from every manager that I had. If I was exposed to them for, for an extended period of time, say more than more than a month or so. Um, and I learned something from, from all of them, uh, John Farrell, um, uh, it's just you learn and pick up different things from every one of them. Jim Tomey, Lloyd McClendon, Lup- Lupinella, like I mentioned before, Lee Mazilli, uh, Tony Pena. It's just they all had an influence in me. But if I had to pick a top three, was the ones that I started with was my junior college coach, my longtime minor league coach, Jeff Johnson, Tony Beasley, and then uh in the big leagues. They made the biggest impact in my careers.
1: Rays are thinking about playing half their games in Tampa, half their games in Montreal. Do you think
2: it would work? Uh, you know, I don't think it would work. I would selfishly hope that they don't do that. Uh, on the bright side, I think the game can support yeah, perhaps even an expansion when the league deems it, you know that the time is right and maybe uh, Montreal is a team and is a team. But I think the Tampa community, and I live here uh, full-time now, as you know, for the last 10 years, uh, 10, 11 years, I think that the market can support uh, this team for the rest of time. Uh, you know, I don't know necessarily what the details of their situation is, you know, contractually with the stadium and CDS and Pete versus you know, the potential in Tampa, and I know that they're looking at a bunch of different things, but I I certainly hope that the team stays in the Tampa Bay area um, for the time being and for the foreseeable future, as I'm planning to be here. So uh, I hope that I have a a team, a local team to root for uh, as a second team to obviously my loyalty to the Toronto Blue Jays. and uh, I don't know. Like I said, maybe they, there's an expansion in Montreal. I know it could be a target city. I know Nashville's pushing hard. I know Portland, the uh, city of Portland is is, uh, is pushing hard. So who knows? Who knows what can happen in the future as long as uh, you know the, the games keep growing, I think nobody will complain. And I know that there's a couple of major league cities out there that uh, are definitely capable of hosting teams. It's just a matter of doing it in a methodical and sustainable way for the league. I'm sure that's the way that they're looking at it. So hopefully Tampa continues to have a team and maybe Montreal at some point gets one. So um, I hope that the whole 50-50 situation between Montreal and Tampa does not happen.
1: Jose Bautista, it's been a pleasure, man. You, you've had an interesting life, uh, great career, and it was a pleasure having you on here. Uh, what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end is we kick it back to the voice of the Boone podcast, Dan Levy, for a question from the fans. Dan.
0: Gentlemen, Jose, this one comes from Jim in Toronto, and he wants to know this. Jose, did you have to keep both Canadian and American money in your wallet when you played in Toronto?
2: loonies loonies i did and i still have some uh i'm sure laying around in some of my different little travel pockets i use i don't know if boonie well i'm sure that you have plenty of these but uh our our dear friends our clubhouse attendants the clubbies as we affectionately call them they used to get us these things in spring training they're kind of these zippered bags where we put all our junk in when we're traveling and I have about a thousand of those in different bags and drawers and corners in my house and every time I unzip one of them I find few little surprises here and there and I find myself digging through some Canadian money and change uh, plenty of times so yes when I was uh, in Toronto I definitely had to carry uh, both currencies at all times.
0: Alright Jose Bautista thank you so much for coming on the podcast sir
2: It
1: has been my pleasure
0: Mailbag
1: Okay, Booner, you know that sound, don't ya? I have no clue what that sound is, Dan, but it has something to do with uh mailbags. Mailbag time <laughs>
0: Alright, this one comes from Jeff in Toronto, and he wants to know this. Booner, in between double headers or rain delays, what the hell
1: are you guys doing in there? Wow. That, that's a great question. And it's, man, you're, you're depending, you're constantly, or at least I was, you're drinking coffee, you're walking around, you might change because you probably were playing in some rain before they pulled you off the field. Uh, some guys are taking shower. You're just trying to stay busy. You're starting to stay loose. Um, usually guys, you know, we, we've got, We've got somebody coming in every every couple minutes and, and they're keeping abreast of the weather and what's going on. It's you know, my rain delays were different nowadays. There's a lot more technology. So you have a lot more right on your phone. What's what's going to happen. But back then, you know, it seemed like, all right, I'd say, where's Doppler, the Doppler radar guy? Where is he? Tell me what's going on. And. And what are the umpires saying? Are we going to be here all night? We want to, you know, you got to start planning. Hey, if we're going to be out of this game, I'm going to go have a nice dinner somewhere. But usually, you're just playing cards, waiting, and and just constantly getting updated on uh, when when to be ready. Because that's the whole thing. Who knows? You might be coming up. You you might be first up when that when that game uh, starts up again. So you know when when it's time, you're in the box, and it, it, you might be in the middle of a count. You know it might be a one one count with a runner on third, a big at bat so uh you're you're kind of just a lot of different things, but usually you're just trying to to just. You know, relax and pass the time. Sometimes they'll say, "We're going to be here a while." The umpire said, "We're finishing this game," so the guys will break the cards out. You got card games going on uh, throughout the clubhouse. Uh, some guys will go take a nap, uh, but you just constantly want to hear from, "Hey, what's going on?" and, and "What what's going on in the umpire's room?" because that's what it was important sometimes they give you a heads up, hey, 15 minutes, if it still looks as bad as it looks on the radar, they're going to bang it and we're going to go home. So now you kind of have an idea. All right, I got 15 minutes to go. So, yeah, interesting question, but, but that's how it was uh, during my time. Like I said, it's probably changed a little bit with technology, but, but still, for the most part, it's the same
0: is it one of those things when they tell you that up oh, we got to come back and play you're kind of like one of those kids that are sad when your parents tell you it's <laughs> well i'll a tell you day. what
1: sometimes sometimes you're having a bad game you want it to be rained out if it's before the fifth inning this is back when they <laughs> didn't count the stats like rain this sucker out i won't be 0 for 2 <laughs> or i don't want to play out there anymore i'm having a rough day i'm not seeing the ball well Um, uh, so it depends now you could be quite the contrary. You could be two for three with a with a three-run homer. You go, no, get me back on that field. I want to get more. So it all depends on how your day was going, how your team was doing that particular day.
0: All right. I would imagine you'd be one of those guys who was, uh, when your parents tell you it's not a snow day, you're like, oh, I got to go to school? Come on. Yes, yes, I was that guy. Believe me. All right. Well, that's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I am the technical director, producer of the show. The executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital content gets handled by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, give it a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Moon Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. See you in the next one.